0: Welcome to the QAV podcast. If you're brand new, I just want to introduce the podcast a little bit so you know what you're getting yourself into. If you've listened to the show before, feel free to just fast forward a minute or two. If you're brand new, here's the deal. Uh, My name's Cameron Riley. Tony Kynaston is an old friend of mine. He's a very successful share market investor. I'm talking very, very, very successful. He's been doing it 30 years. He's one of the best in the country in terms of a private investor. Very good uh, track record over 30 years. And what this podcast is about is Tony basically teaches me everything that he knows about investing in the stock market. And... You get to listen. But if you're coming into this for the first time, you'll find that this episode, the current episodes, assume a certain level of prior knowledge. We assume that you know what we're talking about, his system, his methodology, which we explain in earlier episodes. So feel free to listen if you want to get the vibe for what's going on, but some of it's not going to make much sense unless you understand what the checklist is, etc. I recommend if you're brand new, you go back and listen to uh, Season 3, Episode 1, Episode 3 and Episode 5, where we go into Tony's background and his system and his methodology in a lot more detail. And then feel free to listen to the contemporary episodes, the current episodes. You'll understand more of the context of what we're talking about. With that, let's get into today's show. Welcome back to the QAV podcast, Tony Kynaston. You're at your country estate this week. Well, by the way, this is uh, Tuesday the 15th of December 2020, episode 361, season three, episode 61. Hi. Hi, Ken. How are you? Well, you know, I woke up this morning (laughs) and my NBN wasn't working and finally, you know, they fixed that a few hours later and then uh, got banned from Facebook uh, immediately afterwards. I jumped on Facebook and they said you've been banned, disabled from Facebook. Why? We don't know. Can you get them to review it? We don't know. Uh, they're like, hey, we don't know. We don't. We don't know what's going on. We're just Facebook. No so one tried think- to contact me on Facebook for a while. <laughs> no,
1: and we'll have to devise some kind of workaround for the QAV club and everything too, so we can still promote things either yes. either through me or through Taylor or someone anyway.
0: Well, yes, and I can send people emails um, right. via Mailchimp. I can, you know, I'll be communicating with everyone via emails for the foreseeable future don't look for updates on facebook i'm sorry and you're at the uh, the country estate tony i am the country acre yep in amongst the birds and the trees H- how does it feel to be back in victoria feels
1: good I've, I've missed it all year it's strange though we spent we spent the weekend in melbourne and you've got to wear masks to go inside mm. stores and things and that felt very uncomfortable and unusual yeah haven't had to do that for quite a while in sydney city's pretty much back to normal as i guess queensland
0: is too Oh, Queensland's been back to normal for well, yeah, forever, really, right. for a long time now. Yeah. Mm.
1: yeah, so that was quite confronting. Oh, but um, yeah, it's good to be back here. It's mm-hmm. hot, confronting. Well, putting masks on and seeing people walking around in masks—it just brings no. COVID back to the front of your thinking. Again.
0: <laughs> right,
1: pretty much right. forgotten about it, yeah. this, isn't it. and we stayed. We stayed in a hotel room, and everything's covered in cling wrap. Like the uh, TV (laughs) remotes are in plastic, the cutlery's all wrapped up in cling wrap, the cups and saucers are covered in cling wrap, so yeah, I had to go to a a fair bit of effort to keep it COVID safe.
0: It's like Christmas, you have to unwrap all your presents when you check into the hotel, it's nice.
1: (laughs) Even the condoms had condoms.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's a little bit more information than I really needed, Tony. Uh, Hey, uh, the Financial Review Chanticleer had an article the other day why value investing is back in vogue. And I was so confused because I'm pretty sure that was only like six months ago they said it was dead. Yeah, exactly. It's the zombie value investing. It's back, (laughs) baby. I reckon in the two years we've been, nearly two years we've been doing this podcast, this is the second time. I've seen the whole value investing is dead, value investing is back cycle happen. Mm. It happens it's been, it happens every six months.
1: <laughs> and it's completely meaningless, of course. It never went away. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I don't get it. I mean, I think it's just that, uh, you know, the IT stocks have their day and the afterpays have their day and now the economy coming out of COVID um, and the banks are, up 20 or 30% in stocks like them and travel stocks and Qantas and all that, they're saying that they're value stocks and they're back in vogue. Well, I guess so, but they never really went out of vogue.
0: Yeah. One of the guys he's quoting uh, in this article is Paul Mm Scamvougueras, head of equities at Perpetual Investments. Uh, I think they're the guys we've been trying to get on the show for a while, or they've been trying to get on the show, but we haven't been able to.
1: That was perennial different company.
0: Oh, the
1: perennial and perpetual are different. They right? are, yeah, they both mean the same <laughs> thing and start with P, but they're different. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and these guys are a value fund as well, perpetual pure value share fund. Yep. Yeah, they're one of the most
1: famous value funds in Australia. They've been going for a long time. Oh, okay. Mm.
0: Well, why haven't we had them on the show? I don't know. We should. Uh-huh. We should. We'll reach out to them and get them on the show. I'll make a note. Uh, well, that's good to see anyway that uh, the fin uh, saying value <laughs> investing is back. It might drive a few new people to <laughs> listen to us. Welcome. Welcome anybody who's listening to us because you read that value investing was back in vogue. <laughs> uh, that's strange,
1: isn't it? I mean, it's just uh, content to sell newspapers, really.
0: Yes. Yeah, I think. Yeah, obviously. Yeah, they need they need readers. They need something to talk about. It's in, it's out. This is hot. That's hot. Yep. What's hot? What's not? Yep.
1: And of course, I think it was uh, Steve Mayer who pointed out that there's a, an index for value stocks, and the, the stocks in that index don't really bear any relation to the stocks that we call value stocks. So, someone's arbitrarily assigning them to the index um, for value stocks, and it doesn't make much sense.
0: Right. Hmm. <sighs> mm. Well, uh, a portfolio update while I think of it. Uh, By the way, you know Doug Morris from ShareSite when he was on the show said if we uploaded our portfolio in the ShareSite, he'd be able to give us a secret link Mm. that we could share with everyone. I've been talking to their marketing manager, Angela, and she doesn't seem to know of any secret (laughs) links. So that's not really working out. Okay. But according to uh, ShareSight, our total return for this financial year is currently sitting at 20.27%. According to the Google sheet, it's only, well, our non-total return, just our normal capital gain without dividends factored in, is 18.6%. For the financial year versus the all Lords 11.68%. So we were a bit higher than that when I checked uh, yesterday, but we've dropped a couple of uh, – a point and a half or something today. Okay.
1: And what's the you, – you track the, the portfolio since inception, don't you, too? What are those figures? Yes. Yeah. Since
0: inception, we're we're eleven point seven one percent, and this well that was as the end of last month. So I do it at the end of oh, every okay. month, right? Yep. So this doesn't count anything that's happened in the first two weeks of December. We were, we were up eleven point seven one, and the all odds was up five point zero four. Okay, so we've got our point Since- market. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Twice market on that. We're running at an average of twice market since inception, and um, this financial year, you know, we're almost twice, but yes. you know, probably 70% or something. Up, okay, yeah. good. Hmm, Good. So, um, holy shit, this works, Tony. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite exhausting. <I> <laughs>
1: it's always nice when a plan comes together,
0: isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that makes me want to throw a cigar in my mouth like George Papad. <laughs> I love it when a plan comes together. <laughs> 80s 18 reference there for people who are too young to remember. Or the uh, 2000s movie reboot with Liam Neeson mm. playing the role of, what was his name? What was George Papad's name Ooh, in the 18? Hang
1: on, there was Hannibal.
0: There was. Yeah, he's Hannibal. He's Hannibal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Hannibal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not Hannibal Lecter, no. Hannibal something. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, okay, so uh, stock of the week, Tony. Uh do you have anything in
1: mind? Well, I haven't got a stock of the week. I haven't done a download for a while. I've been traveling, but um I want to talk about a stock of the year. It's it's the end of the final or the end of the calendar year, just about, and financial review and other people are doing their year in review. And I'm gonna nominate Fortescue Medals as our stock of the year. <laughs> and just Hells yeah, talk about it a bit because it's not only stock of the year and probably our best investment for, in the portfolio since we started, but it, it, it highlights a couple of things that we've spoken about and, and brings home a few points. And The first one is about concentration versus diversification. So there are three big iron ore miners on the, on the ASX, BHP Billiton, Rio Tinto and Fortescue Metals Group. Fortescue Metals, though, is, is 100% an iron ore miner. And, uh, you know, they, they've, they've skyrocketed up over the last couple of years. And, in fact, you know, I bought some of them at $3 a share and they're now in the 20s. So it's that's been really good sort of seven times return. Uh, and they're going to pay, well, they're forecasting they're going to pay a dividend of over $2 next year. So, you know, they're a great yield stock mm. as well. But compare those to BHP and Rio, Rio Tinto, which are both up, but they're up sort of, you know, 30%-ish. Um, maybe fifty percent. Mm. And that's because mm. over the years they've diversified away from just being iron ore plays. They they get into other mines and other commodities as well and oil and gas and things all over the world. And um and that I'm not criticizing them. That that, you know, makes them much more stable companies when the iron ore price will eventually come off and it will. Uh but it's it's this example is a bit like a portfolio where if you concentrate on the one thing on your best returns and don't Pay much attention to diversification i think you do better in fact i'm sure you do better over time than uh trying to diversify and we spoke about that last week as well so um, Mm. that was the first first thing i reflected on about fortisky metals Um, and the second thing is is the just the whole fallacy of predictions i mean a year ago i mean just after we bought fortisky metals maybe even 18 months ago people were forecasting that the iron ore price was going to collapse and that you shouldn't be investing in iron ore and and I just took a very agnostic approach to the iron ore price and for every argument that someone gave as to why it was going to collapse, there was an equal argument for why it was going to do well. And uh, mm. you know, on the weekend, iron ore hit $160 a tonne and I think back when we, mm. were, when we bought it, it may have been about $60 a tonne. So, um, um, you know, it's very hard to predict these things and who knows where we'll go from here. I mean, clearly it's being bolstered by the problems in South America for Vale, the other big iron ore producer in the world, and so China's having to buy all its iron ore from Australia. And who knows what China will do. I mean, one day Xi Jinping might get up tomorrow and say, well, I hate Australia so much, that bloody Scott Morrison, I'm not going to buy iron ore from anyone. I'll just shut down the steel mills just out of spite. So, again, you can't predict what's going to happen with this. Mm. and. Better mines than us, like Andrew Forrest and Elizabeth Gaines, who run Fortescue Metals, are, you know, factoring in all this game playing about where the iron ore price is going to go into their business plans. And so they're opening up new mines. I think as we speak, they're just commissioning a new mine somewhere in Australia, in the Northern Territory, I think, which will bolster their, their output. And that, and, you know, more, more iron ore going into the market will depress the price for sure, but that may not depress the share price of Fortescue Metals Group if they've got a bigger share of the market going forward. Uh, I think mm. they're also trying to branch out into Africa. So that might come to fruition. Uh, but yeah, there's, there's, um, there's just so many moving parts and these things are hard to predict. And I think, I think this was a great example of, of that, that whole fallacy of prediction model and, and not trying to predict the future, but just trying to invest in quality companies that uh, you can invest in cheaply.
0: Mm. And let management take yeah, them where so they was- will. So we first, for the QAV portfolio, we bought Fortescue back in August of 2019 at 7.55. It's up 182% as of the time of recording since then. And we bought our second lot in March, early March this year, uh, the beginning of COVID mm-hmm. at $9.63. It's up 121% since March. So mm. definitely has been a real winner for us in the QAV portfolio. Uh, and if I'd known it was going to be that way, we could have put all of our money into Fortescue, But <laughs> We can't. We don't know that. Again, that's don't.
1: part of the fallacy of prediction, yeah.
0: isn't it? It's, um, yes. And it's also so we do diversify a little bit, but true. it's limited diversification. True. No, we, we do. Could, yeah. yeah. We diversify
1: in case we make a mistake with, with what we buy. And we diversify because we don't know which shares on the buy list are going to outperform others. Um, we mm. don't over diversify and we don't try to decorrelate. So, uh, yeah, we stick to the process, which is try to get the best return.
0: We've currently got 15 stocks in the QAV portfolio. Mm-hmm.
1: And yeah, I think that's a nice number. Fifteen to twenty is about the the number that I always try and hold as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so, speaking and every of ch- every year looking back. Sorry, I can't interrupt. Every year looking back, yeah. with hindsight, you can say, "I wish we had had more Fortescue medals, or this, or that." But every year looking back, I mm-hmm. I, I never would have been able to predict with confidence which was going to be the best performing share.
0: Mm, wish we wish we would never bought Apollo tourism. Yeah. that's what I say when I look back. <laughs> well lucky we do have a portfolio because
1: <laughs> we can we can like that that only hurts us two or three percent instead of a whole heap.
0: yeah if I look back at the stocks that we've sold like we over the you know the the duration of the portfolio we've sold a lot of stocks. We've sold about thirty five stocks. Right. Um, some of them we've bought and sold repeatedly uh, versus yeah. the fifteen that we've held. So, <clears throat> you know, when we talk about getting sixty percent of our buyers right, uh, does that work out if we've held fifteen and we've sold thirty-five?
1: No, I don't think it does. But I think this year has been <laughs> unusual for two things: COVID, of course. We we sold at least half the portfolio during COVID, uh, mm. and that's not going to happen every year. And the other yeah. thing is, I think I think. And and I guess this is something I haven't done for a long time, but it was useful doing it with a dummy portfolio. I think getting started um, from scratch can lead to lots of trading until you settle into the portfolio with the stocks that go forward.
0: It's yeah, almost, right.
1: It's almost a, a bit of an evolutionary process. They, you try a few things, they drop back, you sell them. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and then you settle into, well, here are the 15 slots I'm going to go forward with. And, you, and we haven't made many changes to those since yeah. we've settled into that portfolio. Yeah.
0: But even all that uh, taken into account as i said before you know since inception we're up uh, 12% versus the all lords up 5% so it's done what it's supposed to do
1: correct and it survived the covid lockdown i mean i mean how many people if we if we talk to our friends how many people sold out in the covid dip and never came back in or uh, made all kinds of trading mistakes because of that um, mm. but our, our system got us through it, which I, mm. I'm particularly proud of that. Probably a, a, I'm, I'm proud that we've, we've done twice market. That's what I thought we should do. That's what I do. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad it worked out that way for our listeners and, and could, we could prove it demonstrably. And I'm I'm proud of the way we came through COVID because, you know, we, we didn't know what was going to happen in March. There was all mm. kinds of doom and gloom prophecies around the world, but we followed the system and we, so- we sold lots of our shares. And I remember – was it within within a month of that we all started to buy again? It was maybe even weeks. And I went, Well, this is really different to the GFC because the GFC kind of kept going down for eighteen months. And mm. I was trying to use that as the the um the paradigm to, to base decisions on or base thinking mm. on. But mm. we just followed the system and we were back in the next month and we and we rode those stocks back up again and some of those stocks are well, up we, thirty or forty percent since then.
0: We actually started selling off in February. On mass, um, 10th of February, 17th of February, 20th, 24th, we were selling stuff. So, February, Mm -hmm. March, we sold off a ton of stuff looking Mm -hmm. at it here. You're right. Um, and but yeah, we and we did buy AQG on the 17th of February, and then we didn't buy again until we bought Santos on the 3rd of April. So, uh, yeah,
1: we were probably.
0: Yeah, we sat yeah. out for a month or a bit, yeah, month or six weeks. Yeah, we sat in cash for a while, yeah.
1: Mm. But, it, yeah, so anyway, the year in review, I think it was a great learning experience, and, um, and mm. uh, I hope people, you know, have, have starting to build some trust in the, in the model and the system. I think it works. Mm. It does work. Yeah. <laughs> you think it works. <laughs> it you
0: does find. work. <laughs> uh, so speaking of coal, uh, China announced yesterday that they're banning all Australian coal. <laughs> right, OK. Oh, dear. Uh, our, our, um, our
1: politicians aren't doing the business world any service at the moment, are they? You no. Don't push, you don't piss your best customer off.
0: Hold on, but they're a pro-business government, Tony. It's the Liberal <laughs> Party. They're good for business. Uh, you've got to
1: imagine there's a few things going on behind the scenes, like, uh, you know, never going never to donate to the Liberal Party again unless you fix this mess.
0: Funnily enough, I don't see the Murdoch press coming out and uh, lambasting the government for destroying the economy. Um, <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine if it was a Labor government that uh, oh, ended yeah. up with China banning coal, what what the headline of the Herald Sun oh. and the Australian would be? It would be, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sky News. Oh. Yeah. They'd be, you know, they'd be tearing their clothes off and running around and chopping heads off and l- lighting torches and stuff. It'd be crazy.
1: Yeah. Whereas I think most of the editorials are, you know, Scott Morrison stands firm and stands tough.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, here's another thing Clear posted uh, today. Jeff Wilson's Amazim bid channels Warren Buffett. Jeff Wilson's opportunistic bid for mobile business Amazim sets a higher bar for any counteroffice. It also marks a new phase in his management of permanent shareholder capital. He's doubled down on his commitment to Warren Buffett's idea of using permanent capital to build wealth with a takeover bid for mobile virtual network operator Amazim. I what? use them, They're my mobile provider. Oh, so, okay.
1: uh, yeah. i will you have mm. a new owner. I'm not, not sure. I sort of briefly read that article this morning. I'm not quite sure what, what permanent capital means there. I mean, Jeff Wilson runs lots of investment funds, listed investment companies, so that he's got permanent capital, I guess, and his job is is to invest it. So I guess maybe the difference here is that he'll take over this company and it'll be a privately owned investment for that fund. Is that the difference?
0: Oh, yeah, I don't know, man. You're the yeah. expert. I'm just reading yeah. what this says in the film. I, I think it is. It, I
1: have, I've only just read it briefly myself this has, he, uh,
0: has he done any other complete acquisitions, Wham?
1: No, I don't think he has. He tends to just take um, big big positions in companies like Myer, for example. I think he owns 10 15% of Myer, uh, and, and that's big for him. So this might be the first time he takes something private. That's that's probably what they're talking about, but I'm not sure if that's channeling Warren Buffett necessarily.
0: Mm-hmm. There's a great great uh, anecdote in this article. Uh, Jeff Wilson tells Chanticleer Clear that the concept of permanent capital was well explained by hedge fund manager Bill Ackman at this year's Son Hearts and Minds Investment Conference last month. During an interview, Ackman retold the story of how Buffett created Berkshire Hathaway more than 50 years ago. If you follow Berkshire from 1956 to 1969, he was an activist hedge fund manager, Ackman said. Then in 1969, he wrote a letter to his investors saying, I made a whole bunch of money. I'm a little less motivated. I'm not going to work as hard going forward, and I'm going to go run this crappy textile company. (laughs) Ackman said his investors got choice of cash or stock in Berkshire. Many took cash. Some famous names took cash. Buffett took stock, and that gave him control of his own vehicle. And what's interesting is he walked away from managing a $100 billion hedge fund, which in 1969 was a very large hedge fund. Sounds like a very large hedge fund to me today. Yeah, I think it was billion in 69. I think
1: it was more like no, maybe
0: yeah. $100 million. $100
1: million.
0: Yeah. yeah, I would have thought so too. $25 million of it was his, and he got 25% of the profits. Well, there you go. That puts pay to the numbers there. He exchanged that, if you will, for what amounted to a company in textiles, a dying business. And of course, we know that he then used Berkshire to go and buy other companies run okay. and run them from that. So, so
1: that's, what that,
0: that's what Wilson's doing, yeah. Yeah, he's buying a
1: complete company and then going to use it to uh, to fund other things from the profits, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, that's interesting for him to do that. I'm not sure what vehicle he's using to do it, whether it's uh, Wham Capital or one of the other funds, but there's pros and cons of that but the, the pros are he's probably getting so big he has to do that for, for these investments he can, taking a percentage share in them doesn't make much sense uh, but when you delist a company or whether it, when you take it private like that then it gets uh, it gets a, a different accounting treatment i'll call it that so um, it, it probably won't be a problem but if you have if you have the list of investment companies like he does, every month he marks them to market because he can tell his investors what the share price, the closing share prices were for the shares in his portfolio, and then straight away you can see whether the the listed investment companies trading above or below net tangible assets because you know the sum of all the share prices for the stocks and how much he owns of those stocks, and you can compare that to what one share of that listed investment company is at the moment. You can decide to buy or sell. Based on the discount or premium, but if you have a privately owned, if you have privately owned companies in there, uh, you can't market to market every month. He has to put some kind of value on that company, and that that can become tricky. I'll say that there are listed investment companies out there which I won't touch. Let me say that because they don't don't have listed investments in them, and working out what their net tangible assets are becomes More akin to an IV calculation for for a business, and and there's you know a lot of as we know from our own IV checklist, there's a lot of um, opinions in that valuation process. And if if you're if you're the runner, if you run that listed investment company and you value the underlying companies that are in that listed investment company, you're kind of marking your own scorecard, and I think that leads to issues and. We saw particularly in the GFC where com- conglomerates or listed investment companies that did that had to suddenly write down their their assets dramatically uh, because they had been perhaps overstating the values in the past. And then when the rubber hit the road in the depression, uh, it became quite obvious that those listed invest- investment companies had been overvaluing their assets to get their net tangible asset value up and therefore their share price. So. I'm not saying that Jeff Olson will do that or have problems with that, but it's something to watch out for if he's going down that route, that it doesn't become as straightforward as looking at the NTA for the listed investment company every month and comparing it to the the mark to market share prices.
0: Yeah. Um, it is uh, WAM or WAM Capital that he's using, apparently. Wilson's WAM Capital is offering 69.5 cents in cash for each Mason share. Right. The big okay. prize for Wilson is $80 million in franking credits sitting on a Masim's balance sheet. hmm
1: Anyway. Yeah, and that's because WAM Capital has built its um, followers uh, on the basis of paying out a good dividend, a frank dividend yield. So they, they, they have lots of – these days they have lots of retirees investing in wham capital in particular and getting a sort of 6%, 6, percent 6, yield plus franking credits, and that's very attractive to people compared to what they can get in the market uh, in a bank account or in a, a bond-like um, investment.
0: Right. Okay. Well, let's uh, quickly run through some journal entries and get into the questions. We've got Ooh. a ton of them today to finish up the year with. Um, Well, I think we'll do one next week, but yeah, yeah, nearly finishing up the year. Uh, uh, Autosports Group, you removed from the buy list because its price had dropped below the sell line and you said it now looks like a falling knife.
1: Yeah. That one came into the buy list a couple of months ago, I think, and it had ticked up there for a bit, Uh, but uh, it's it's ticked down again now and I think it probably is a falling knife.
0: For new listeners, a falling knife is a fairly common term in investing. It's for a stock that's continuing to go lower. It may spike up a little bit from time to time, but then it keeps dropping, and it's uh, trying to catch that stock, trying to buy it when it bottoms out is a bit like trying to catch a, a falling knife. Tony often says you've got to wait for the knife to hit the floor before you pick it up or you'll catch yourself so uh, when you see a stock like that that's continually uh, sliding backwards over a long period of time, despite attempts for it to poke its head up, uh, we call that a falling knife, and we tend to avoid them.
1: Always difficult with those kinds of share graphs where they sort of start to do the the Nike swoosh, you know, the hockey stick going up at the, after going down for a
0: long time. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. But it has printed down again and gone gone below its sell price.
0: Really? Um, Hmm. I'm just trying to – yeah, I'm pulling it up, just having a bit of problems with Stock Doctor doing what it's told. You've been banned from them too, have you? Oh, God. Oh, uh, yeah, no, they they were nice to us. They sent me a nice email last week uh, saying everything's fine, keep doing what you're doing. So uh, a couple of people have asked me if we've got an update on the Stock Doctor situation. They've got no problem with uh, us sharing a little bit of their data uh, with you as we teach and train, apparently. So that's nice. Yeah, that's good. Good on them. This graph that I've got only goes back to late 2016. Is that uh, when Autosport's listed? Uh, Yes,
1: November 2016, correct. Okay. Okay.
0: So I'm just uh, looking at the cell line here. I'm starting at what looks like I don't know April 2020 COVID cough, and yep. oof, what are you drawing as a second line? Like the next lowest point, the month after.
1: Uh, I did originally draw it at that point, and that's why it became a buy. So if you if you sort of follow the peaks down, it then became a buy around October 2020. But now I'm drawing the sell line using April 2020 and September 2020. So there's been a couple of buy and sell iterations in the last few months with this one. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And if you use those two points, it's just dropped below that that sell line, and yeah. it's it's kind of hugging the buy line. It hasn't gone above it again yet.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the buy line, yeah, it's sitting on the buy line. It's below the sell line. <laughs> yeah. Of So, not good for ASG Autosports. There you go. Let's see, what else did you talk about? Yang Well, that's the end of the free episode for this week. For the brand-new folks, I want you to know that each week we have a free episode and a premium episode. Free episode runs about half an hour. Premium episode usually runs for an extra half hour to an hour, depending on how many questions we have from our audience that week because we spend a lot of that time answering questions. Uh, If you want to check out the premium episodes, you can go up to our website, qavpodcast.com.au and sign up for the two-week free trial. You get to have a look at the uh, premium episodes, you get to have a look at the checklist, the getting started guide, all of the video content that we have, Uh, you get invited to our VIP dinners and our VIP Zoom calls for club members, you get to ask Tony questions that we can answer, you get to get invited to our uh, Facebook group our private Facebook group etc cetera, etc cetera. so and also we get a, a private uh, club member newsletter each week we send out as well with some stuff in it so check that out qavpodcast.com.au. but as i said if you're brand new and you want to you're trying to figure out what's going on go back and listen to season 3 episodes 1 3 and 5 301 303 and 305 and then you might also want to go back and listen to season 1 as well, All of the free episodes in Season 1 where we go into a lot of detail about Tony's system and methodology and figure out if this is right for you. If it's something that you want to go further with, if you want to learn how to invest like Tony does, then you can check out the uh, QAV Club. Uh, the other thing I always have to say is we're not financial advisors, so don't take anything you hear on this as financial advice. This is just here to teach how one guy invests and thinks about investing. If you need financial advice or tax advice, please go see a financial advisor or a tax advisor. Uh, with that, stay safe, good luck with your investing, and we'll be back next week.